We are in the last section of 1 Corinthians. Pastor Austin did a great job kind of getting us into this last section, talking about the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And as we're in this last section, this is the most important thing we need to discuss. And I'm not just drumming up kind of your attention for the sermon. Paul said it. Right As he goes into this discussion on the gospel, he says, look, there's a lot of things you should grow and improve on. This is of first importance. Most important to understand the gospel and all the chaos of life, this is what we need to grasp. And so this time we're going to kind of look at, okay, the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. What are the implications of that event? So we're going to kind of look at those different implications, but I want to start with kind of setting the scene. We're going to have kind of different passages we're going to break up and read, but let's start with this first verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, to kind of set the stage of the issue they were dealing with. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So this is kind of setting up the rest of the chapter. What is going on here? Some people in the church were proclaiming, okay, maybe Christ rose from the dead, but for us, that there is no bodily resurrection of believers, of people. So that's what's happening here that's crept into our eternity is just going to be a bodiless kind of spiritual eternity. And Paul says, no way, that doesn't line up with the reality of the resurrection. So that's what's going on here. They were denying that, and Paul would have none of it. See, the world that they lived in was this platonic worldview. And by platonic, I don't mean that girl that you're really into, the way she views your relationship. I mean platonic as in Plato, right? Plato kind of creating this worldview of what it's our inherited worldview. We're the West coming out of this Greco-Roman world. Plato said this, the soma is a sema. Those are the Greek words. The soma is a sema. Here's what it means. The body is a tomb. See, for them, this worldview of the Greco-Roman worldview, the spiritual and the physical were not just different, they were diametrically opposed. They were oil and water, OSU and Michigan, like these things don't play together. And that was his view. That was the view of the culture, and guess what? That crept into the church. It was easier for them to think of a lack of existence than a bodily existence with a lack of evil. And so for them, there was no resurrection. There couldn't be because physical is evil. And that's what Paul is addressing and taking them back to the gospel. Because that is not in line if the gospel is real. And for Paul, we're going to hammer this, the reality of the resurrection. We're not just talking metaphors. If Jesus rising from the dead is just a spiritual metaphor, it's meaningless for Paul. And you're going to see that. So when you're talking about the gospel, we're saying that this really happened and it truly happened for you to really and truly to have healing, that this isn't just a nice spiritual metaphor. So when we're talking the gospel, this is key. You have to get the category correct. So what kind of category? Think about it in a class. You're going to Kent State and you're going to study the gospel of Christ. Kind of what school, what class would that be under? 
I studied, you probably said, oh, maybe religion, maybe philosophy. I just heard somebody say fiction. Okay, you have to understand, if the gospel in God's eyes, in Paul's eyes, is true, you should study that in a history class. It is a historical fact and event. The word gospel means news. So when you think news, don't just think good ethics. It means events. This, when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about news of an event, not ethics. Most people get that wrong. I'm guessing most people in this room, when you think about the gospel, you go to ethics, love your neighbor, love these things. There are ethical implications. There are spiritual implications of the gospel. But at its core, the gospel is news. It's an event. So I want you to think of a newspaper. If you're under 30, before news was on your phone, they had it on paper. They had these biker gangs. Before the sun would come up, they would throw the news at your house. It was wild times. They had video games about it on Nintendo. Seriously, Paperboy, one and two, two at color. So when you think of this, this is news, right? Ian hits landfall. Is that an opinion? No, it's telling you about a historical fact. That's the gospel. We're not talking about an opinion piece. We're talking about an event rooted in history. This is so important to grasp. When you're thinking about the gospel, what is the category? Think history and facts. Don't think philosophy, spirituality first. Think actual, factual. This is huge to understand. That's why I love this quote. Christianity is not a system of good advice And the preachers had not simply told people of a good way to live. They had said that something happened. God raised up Christ. Christianity is basically a gospel, the good news of what God has done. We're proclaiming what has happened. To get that category right will have huge implications on your life. Most people view the gospel as good advice to live. My favorite example to feel the difference between ethics and events, between philosophy and history, think about this. A guy's in a foxhole. Somebody jumps down in the foxhole with you. This is how people view Christianity. They give you advice. Hey, keep your head down. The guys are over there. Make sure you're staying down. Make sure you have your sight lines. Look out for the guy on your right. That's advice, and that's how people view the gospel more or less. Think about that. And then think about how different this feels. Somebody's in a foxhole. Somebody jumps in with you and says, yesterday, the bad guy surrendered. Get up. Do you feel that difference? We're not saying, be good people, do all these things. There are ethical implications. We're saying, because of this historical, factual, verifiable event... There are massive ramifications in your life. We have to get this right. We have to get the category correct. And if it is in that category of historical fact, that's what our faith is rooted in, not just a way of life, then I would encourage you, I would implore you to respond to that appropriately. One that I would disagree with, you can deny it. Like, that's an option. I don't think you're right. You can deny, I don't think that really happened. I don't think he really rose from the dead. You can do that, but you have to look at all the evidence and say, is that conclusion most coherent with all the evidence? So we're saying, actually, this happened. 
Think about the passage last week. It said there were 500 eyewitnesses. Most of them are still alive. That's what he wrote to them. So if you're saying you have to have a reason, a conclusion, why the church happened, if all these eyewitnesses are there in the empty tomb, the most logical conclusion is he really rose from the dead as I see it. Maybe some, you know, this is one of the big things. Oh, it's a hallucination. Where do hallucinations happen? In here. How can 500 people see the same hallucination? They can't. That is not consistent with a hallucination. Something out there they had to see. And what did he say? The time frame is huge. He said, look, you know, this is within like 20 years. He said, go talk to the people that saw them. They're like, ask Ray Ray. Ray Ray was there. Ray Ray, tell him. Ray Ray was like, yeah, I saw him. It was crazy. (laughs) That's what he says. He says, you can go talk to these people that saw them. But think of the time frame, right? If I were to make up a lie, think of legends that have arose from George Washington. That can happen not within this time frame. This is about the distance between us and 9-11. What are the odds that this takes off? I'm going to try to start a rumor that, yes, there are certain planes that went into buildings. But how about when Tom Cruise and Rudy Giuliani shot down 20 other planes? Let's start that rumor. Is it going to take off? No, there's zero chance. Why? Because many of you saw it with your own eyes. You saw it on the news. How would that happen in this time frame? How would Christianity ever have taken off if it wasn't true? So I would encourage you. I mean, denying it is at least consistent, although I wouldn't think that's the right conclusion. But here's the thing. You can't just disagree with it. You can't just say, well, that works for you when we're dealing with facts, right? You can deny facts. You can't disagree with them, right? It is a fact. There is 97 car washes in Stowe. That's a verified, I didn't look up the real number, but it's a lot, right? Like that's, you can't say, I deny that. Now you can disagree. Do we need another car wash? That's fine, but... You can't just disagree with facts. When I say this, that Jesus really rose from the dead, I would encourage you to decide. Maybe you deny it. I want you to think of the ramifications of that we're going to get into. But you can't disagree and just say that's for you. I think of this illustration because some people just think, oh, I could just not decide. Well, that's good for you. Me? Agnostic. Right? And so it's like we're on this stream of life. And Jesus said, hey, there are falls coming. I want to save you from those falls. And you just lean back in the boat, say, ah, I don't really, I don't know how I feel about that. Okay, that's fine, but you're still going to go boom, right? Like you have to decide. Not deciding is defaulting that you don't think it is true. So I would encourage you to make conclusion, but let your conclusion line up with all the evidence. Because for Paul, this isn't a metaphor. This is rooted in an historical fact. And now I want to move into, okay, this is Paul's worldview. The reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is a reality. So then what are the implications? And he goes on kind of an interesting journey. The implications if it's not true, the implications if it is true, and then the implications on our life. So let's dive back into the passage. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll pick it up in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I remember a conversation in high school. Maybe you've had a conversation like this. Even if I don't believe, even if it's not true, it's better to believe Right? Like, even if this isn't true, it's still good that I put my faith in. Maybe you've heard this. It doesn't really matter what you put your faith in. It doesn't even matter if it's true. It's still a good thing. Have you ever heard something like that? That doesn't line up for Paul. Listen, if it's not true, what are the implications that this isn't real, that this is just a nice thing we do? Look at where Paul goes after. Our preaching preaching is in vain because we are liars. Your faith is useless because you're still in your sins. There is no hope in the afterlife for those who have died. You will never see them again, and we are most of all to be pitied. How do you really feel, Paul? Don't hold back, buddy. Like, he rails at this. If this isn't true, let's stop pretending that this is a nice thing. If this isn't true, I'm a liar and I should stop preaching. Any faith you put in Christ is useless. You don't really have any forgiveness. At best, this is one big placebo effect to make ourselves feel a little bit better because there really isn't forgiveness of sins and there really isn't hope in the afterlife if this isn't true. Now, if this isn't true, don't come to church. Leave now. Grab donuts. Grab all the donuts. Grab donuts off kids. It doesn't matter. Because there isn't really morality. This place has always looked like a Chipotle. We should just start serving burritos, guac, the whole thing. If this isn't real, if this isn't true and based off of reality and historical events, we need to close up shop because stop pretending that this is a nice thing. Many of you that know me know William Wallace is my spirit animal. As a pastor, I don't believe in spirit animals, but I do need to get this clip going. So I try to resist. Sometimes I sneak in a Braveheart clip. I don't want to be a martyr. No, I. I want to live. I want a home and children and peace. Do you? I do. I've asked God for those things. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. It's just a dream, William. A dream? Just a dream. <laughs> what have we been doing all this time? I think that's Paul's perspective. Wait a minute. This, you didn't really believe like the freedom of the gospel? This isn't real. If it's not real, it's meaningless. Pretending elsewhere, anything else other than that, you're not being honest with yourself. If this isn't real, we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. It says we should be pitied most of all. Talk about martyrs, right? 
And even guys, there are people in church that can be really invested but don't really believe it. And right, that's when it comes down to real sacrifice. Like, whoa, I'm not going to sacrifice for that unless it's true. And that's what we got to wrestle through. Is it true? And if not, we should be pitied. So I was thinking of missionaries and martyrs. Like if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, idiots. What a waste. Some of our missionaries just this past week had a child on the field. Away from so many of family and friends and loved ones, why did they sacrifice all that? If it's not true, the answer, for nothing. It's a waste. Like if this isn't real, then missionaries are foolish and martyrs are the biggest fools of them all. If you kind of get to that conclusion, have the courage to think of the consequences of that conclusion. There is an afterlife. This is foolish. That is consistent with, that would be the implications of this if this isn't real. If I ever get to the point where I, I don't think Jesus actually rose, I'm doing two things. I'm quitting my job and I'm calling every missionary saying, come home. It doesn't matter. This isn't real. There's a lot of different opinions of how to get to God. That is a consistent implication of if the gospel isn't true that Jesus didn't really raise. That's a depressing part. Now on to the good part. Right? So what are the implications? He kind of runs down that. If this isn't true, what does that mean? But if it is true, what does that mean? Like, not just metaphor. If Jesus really did die for the payment of your sins, he was buried and rose again. What are the implications of that? And Paul unpacks it. Let's keep going in the passage. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, if this isn't just a nice church thing, then there really is hope. Like you really can experience forgiveness of sins and freedom from your shame, right? That thing, that peace that you've been looking for, if this is true, then you really can experience that peace that only the gospel can bring. 
that freedom from your shame, that acceptance, that approval that you've been chasing after, that you can experience perfect approval because of the gospel, that this isn't just a game. This isn't a nice thing we do on Sunday and sing songs, that this is real and that you really can find that freedom and hope. This isn't just a church game and a nice church activity. Then this is real. And if that means, I love to put it this way. If this is true, not just peace in the present, but hope for eternity. And he gets in there in this passage. The defeat of death at the resurrection of Christ guarantees the end of death at the return of Christ. Do you hear him tie those two together in the passage? Okay, if we're not raised, then Christ isn't raised. But if Christ is raised, then he's going to come back again. And I want you to think about the implications of that, right? And that's where I can kind of at least respect where their Greeks have come from. This past week, I was at kind of a counseling training of how to kind of use prayer to kind of bring about healing. And part of it was to bring yourself to a safe place. And I kind of walked through this. I almost couldn't do it, right? To, to fathom a perfect world where there is no danger, there is no decay, there is no death. It's almost unimaginable. But if that day happened where Jesus conquered the grave, he promised you this day will come. I think so many of us missed it. I want to read the heart of that passage, and I want you to think about this day that will come when Jesus returns. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he has put all things, all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Find that an interesting verse. He's going to reign until his enemies are done. So what does that tell you? Yes, Jesus is king, but he has a contested reign, right? We're still afflicted by death. We're still afflicted by disease, and it is difficult. But because of the cross and the empty tomb, this day is coming. Can you imagine that? Where there is no more pain, no more disease, it says all the bullets and hate's gun will be removed from this world. I love this quote. I love this line. At the death of death. At the death of death, the final rupture in the universe will be healed and God alone will rule over all beings, banishing those who have rejected the divine offer of life and lovingly governing all those who by grace have entered into God's rest. Can you breathe that in? Like that day's coming. You know, in that time with the Lord, like I felt one thing God speak to me because I can fall into this. Man, if this never ends, I don't know if I can make it. And for God to speak that over me, it will end. If you are in Christ, whatever you're dealing with, it will one day end because that's what the historical, real resurrection of Christ guarantees will come. Do we live in light of that? I was reminded of this story. 
I just heard it this week, and it was so powerful. This is Dr. Donald Barnhouse. He's a Presbyterian minister, kind of like 1920 to 1960. This is a little bit of his story that I think ties into this. Barnhouse was widowed at a young age. The death of his wife, Ruth, left him with a six-year-old daughter at home. He had real difficulty working through his own grief, but the hardest part was to comfort and explain the death to their daughter. He later recalled that all of his education and theological training left him at a loss. All these church activities and nice activities apart from Christ isn't enough to sustain us. But if this is real, then he could look his daughter in the eye and have hope that there is genuine hope to be had in the reality of the resurrection in the gospel. The details, hard to know. Some people actually place the conversation with his daughter on the way to the funeral. It was a sunny day. The sun was kind of more on the horizon, kind of casting a wide shadow on everything that the sun hit. And he's with his daughter and trying to help her process the genuine hope of the gospel. And he sees this big truck coming at him. This massive truck kind of casting a wide shadow. And he asks his daughter, Hey, sweetie, what would you rather get hit by, that truck or the shadow of the truck? And of course, his six-year-old in six-year-old fashion, that's silly, Daddy. The shadow. The shadow can't hurt me. That's right, sweetie. Jesus got hit by the truck, so Mommy could only get hit by the shadow. See, the end of death is coming. One day, there will be no more death and disease. I promise you that day is coming. But we sit in between the defeat of death and the end of death, and it still stings. But would you see and grasp the hope of the gospel? That yes, we still experience death, but it's but a shadow. What is a shadow? Maybe it can make us feel cold maybe give us a little chill, but ultimately because of the hope of the gospel, it cannot touch us. Do we really believe in the reality of the gospel and what that means for us that one day the death of death is coming? Let us sustain ourselves with the peace we can have now for the forgiveness of sins and the hope that is to come one day. Whatever you're struggling with, I promise you, in Christ, it will end. And the interesting thing is we go into this last section. We're looking at the reality of the resurrection, the implications of it. You could be tempted to think the main point of this is to convince unbelievers that the resurrection really happened. Who's this letter written to? If you don't believe this, I want you to believe it. That's not what he's addressing here. He's not addressing atheists that act like atheists. He's addressing Christians that say they believe it and their life isn't lined up with it. That's the great issue he's addressing. If this is real, does our life make sense in light of this? And that's where he takes them in the last section. Otherwise... 
What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Wake up, fellow Christian. If this is true, does my life and how I live make sense? If I had about six more hours I can get into, baptized on behalf of the dead, I don't, and I'm not touching that at the end of sermon. (laughs) But let's be clear, he's not encouraging them to do this. What he's encouraging them to do is, if this is true, does your life makes sense. And he's talking about his life and how they live. So I want to challenge you and leave you kind of with this three ideas to make sure we are living in light of the reality of the resurrection. Sacrifice over self-indulgence. Sanctification over sin and faith over fear. Did you hear that? When he's talking about how hard his life is? It's like, if this is real, if this isn't real, why am I dying every day? He said, death is his constant companion. Why would I sacrifice so much? If this isn't real, stop sacrificing. Stop coming to church. Go to Red Lobster. Eat all the cheddar biscuits you can. Isn't that what he said? If this isn't true, then eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter how you live. So he's saying the world lives in self-indulgence because the world thinks this is all there is. But for a Christian to believe this is true, we don't get to live just for today and live for our own comforts. Paul says, I die daily. Now let's be honest. If we were to all show our budgets and our calendars to everybody as a Christian, Is it a picture of sacrifice or self-indulgence? I mean, I'm convicting myself here. Okay, how much of my life, how much of my paycheck instantly is for my comfort? If this is real, then we're called to lay down our lives and sacrifice because this world isn't all there is. It is for the kingdom. It is for eternity. We don't just live for now. And did you see that? Don't go on sinning. And remember in light of the gospel, don't leave here, oh, I need to stop sinning or God doesn't love me. The beauty of the gospel is putting your faith that in the cross, an empty tomb, you are forgiven. You don't earn God's love. But if that is true, We say, wake up. If I'm a child of God, am I living for him or am I just living for sin and doing what I want to do? It doesn't make sense if this is true. Livy said, wake up from your drunken stupor. 
How many Christians are just walking around half buzzed, not really thinking about eternity, not really thinking about who God is, going about, working, doing all the stuff you have at home, planning vacations, just blinded by the self-indulgence that we live? Wake up. What if this is true? And what if we really lived like it's true? You see that last one on bumper stickers, to believe in faith, that this isn't just a game, this is real, and to not live in fear. If Jesus died for you and paid for all your sin, he is not punishing you. That he perfectly loves you because you are forgiven. Not to live in fear that this God is angry at you. If the gospel is true, that's impossible because your sins were paid for. Do you live in faith like this is real? Not just the peace we have for today, but the great hope we have in eternity. To not live in fear, but to know because of what Jesus has done in that day, this day will come. The death of death will come. Pain will be no more. Death, even the shadow of death, will be gone. And we will be reunited with Christ and all those in Christ that have passed on for eternity. What if we lived like we really believed that to be true? Will you pray with me? Father, forgive me for how many times I just live for the now. I take my eyes off of Jesus. God, I act like there is no eternity, that the gospel isn't real. God, for those that have never been faced with it, I pray that they would be convinced of the truth of the gospel, the reality of the resurrection and forgiveness available to us. And for those of us that have come to know the truth of that, that have put our faith in that, God, help us to live for it, to live for you, and to live like we know that to be true. And I pray this because of Christ, for Christ, and in his name. Amen.